This is a Federal News Network podcast. This is a Federal News Network podcast. For the Technology Modernization Fund, the Bank of Mom and Dad is closed for fiscal 2022. If you've raised kids, you probably grasp the message Congress sent to the TMF in the omnibus bill passed last week. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why lawmakers zeroed out the Technology Modernization Fund. Jason joins me now with the latest. Jason, why did they zero it out? Tom, it's a little surprising that they actually zeroed it out, given that they gave them a billion dollars in the American Rescue Fund Act back uh, about a year ago. And on top of it, you know, the House has been fairly supportive of the TMF over the last, you know, three, four years. Uh, the White House requested about $500 million in the 2022 budget request. The House at one point had allocated $50 million for IT modernization and cyber improvements through the TMF. But what it came down to, and, and this is what I heard from uh, Congressman Mike Quigley's uh, uh, an aide to him, who is the chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government, they basically said, we didn't obligate TMF any new funding because they still have more than $700 million in unobligated funds from that American Rescue Plan Act. And it's a huge surplus. We don't think GSA and the TMF board can obligate all that money in 2022 anyways. So why get put more money when, when they have plenty already? So the coffers are, are fairly full. And they point out this is supposed to be a revolving fund. Money is supposed to come back in based on savings. Now, Tom, we know that payback model has been very difficult for a lot of agencies, and OMB did take steps to reduce the requirements around the payback model. But basically, Congress said enough. You know, it's like kind of like you know when our kids would ask us for money and said, "Hey, I give you ten dollars last week. I give you ten dollars this week." What do you need more money for? And I don't think uh, OMB and, and, and GSA and the folks had a good good enough answer for Congress. Right, especially if there's still $9 left in your piggy bank after all those two weeks. So this is not then a sign necessarily that Congress doesn't support the idea. They just want to see maybe the wise expenditure of the money they already raised in there. That's a fair point. I mean, you know, if you think about how much money has come out of that billion dollars so far, it's only about $320 million. So there's a lot left over. But what Congress needs is to show some evidence. And, and Mike Hettinger, who is a president of Hettinger Strategies and a former staff director in, in the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, he talks about what Congress, what OMB, what, what agencies really do need when it comes to, if you will, marketing the TMF. I think you just need to do more of that, right? As much as we can sort of bring Congress along, um, part of it's marketing, right? I mean, I think as I listen to Raylene and, you know, with my experience in, in these projects, there's a lot of good stuff that's, that's happening. These, uh, the TMS is funding really good, smart projects that need to be modernized. And, and maybe they need to, you know, get on their soapbox and say, look, this is what we're doing. Maybe they need to have a, um, I think we did some of this early on, um, uh, you know, at a conference or some sort of event where they um, trumpet the successes of, of the program. Again, Mike Hettinger, a former staff director over at the Oversight and Government Reform Committee and currently president of Hettinger Strategies. He also says the other piece that you have to keep in mind about this is, yes, you have to educate them, but this is also not your typical ID, IT funding. And, and, and Hettinger says the reason why the TMF got a billion dollars in the American Rescue Plan Act is because the authorizers are really in charge, not the appropriators for once. Now that the appropriators are back in charge of regular appropriations, it's a little more difficult. So, so Congress and OMB, again, those people like Jerry Conley have to do more. When you're trying to convince Congress to invest in IT, and IT investments are different, right? And Congress doesn't necessarily understand traditional IT investments, so it's that much harder to get them to understand sort of this non-traditional 
um, IT investment, but it's like one of a thousand things that they have to do, right? And so the simpler we can make it, the more direct we can make it, the easier it is for them to, to understand what's going on here, the more chances you'll have of, of getting them to buy in. Again, Mike Hettinger talking about why the, this really the idea of, of marketing, of, of educating Congress is so important. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And so what sort of demand is the TMF board seeing now from agencies? There was a flurry of incoming applications and this labor intensive board was chewing through them. What's going on now? They're still chewing through them and because there's still a lot of uh, people and a lot of agencies are really excited to get on board with this billion-dollar fund. Uh, Raylene Young, who's the executive director of the Program Management Office for the Technology Modernization Fund, she spoke at a recent NextGov conference along with Mike Hettinger, and she says there's, they have they received more than 130 proposals from more than 40 different agencies and bureaus, totaling $2.5 billion in total project demand. So as you can tell, Tom, the TMF board is overwhelmed by demand. And what's clear about it is they've taken a very measured approach to loaning out this money. As I mentioned, they've only loaned out about, if you will, about $320 million out of that billion dollars. Uh, and, and there's still a lot more to come. But the issue is OMB has a $7 billion technical debt across government. That's what their estimate is back in 2016. So that's much higher today than it was before. And what Raylene Young says is the TMF understands that there's this huge demand. And it's also this idea that the program itself has got to evolve. And, and she talks about what seeing across the government, all these projects that come in, what it really means for the TMF program. In many ways, the TMF not only now has this really interesting bird's eye view of what dozens of federal agencies are looking to modernize and how they want to approach it. But we also have this huge demand that far exceeds the capacity that we currently have to invest. I think all of that, just the sheer number of proposals, the complexity of the projects, the numbers of agencies, and the number of investments that we're supporting has made it so that um, I would say the whole TMF program has really had to evolve and change and kind of think a lot more about providing that high volume and, and high quality support at significant scale. Um, so that means, you know, we've really changed basically everything about our operations, everything from the way the team is staffed to the way that we engage with the board and a lot of different systems and processes around how we uh, examine and, and really try to uh, evaluate proposals. Again, Raylene Young, the executive director of the Technology Modernization Fund Program Management Office. Now, the other thing she says is the TMF Program Management Office is also rising up to meet this challenge. They've hired about 15 people into their office today, and more experts are coming around public-facing digital services, scaling technology, cybersecurity, operations support. In fact, Tom, if you go to their, the TMF website today, and we have a link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com, you can see they're hiring an an IT strategist, someone who kind of has a jack of all trades. So there's a lot of effort to really make this happen and, and go faster. They just need to build up the internal resources to do that. And you mentioned about a third of the billion dollars in the TMF from the American Rescue Plan has been loaned out or given out. What about the rest of it, the other 600 odd million? You're right, Tom. There's a lot of money left over, and that's obviously why Congress didn't put more money in the coffers. What what is what is getting frustrating, I think, for a lot of people in government and in industry is how long it's the board is taking to make these decisions. They just made two recent awards, one to the Postal Regulatory Commission and one to the Selective Service System to modernize customer facing applications. 
But again, two very small agencies and the total awards to both of them only equaled $9 million. Again, bringing the total amount of loans given out from this billion dollars back a year ago to $320 million. So again, $680 million left plus leftover money from previous years. Again, totaling over $700 million still to be handed out. And I, I think what this is signaling, Tom, is, is there's a big demand but the board is struggling to keep up with that demand to look through the projects, to get the projects in a place where they feel comfortable making these loans. So I think, Tom, over the next you know three, six months, we'll, have to, we'll likely see a lot of activity from the TMF board to get more of this money out the door. Because I think part of what they need to do is show Congress that, one, they can get the money out the door, have successful projects, and so they can get more money, whether through the revolving fund, meaning agencies paying back from savings, or from Congress real, uh, authorizing and, and appropriating more money. And what is the status of that payback requirement? Because I thought that was not so strict under the American Rescue Plan dollars as it was under the regular appropriated dollars. So the payback requirement was changed by OMB as part of the money they got from the American Rescue Act Plan. Congress didn't change the payback requirement. OMB did as part of their memos. So it all depends. I mean, a lot of it's negotiated internally based on per project. Sometimes it's maybe, hey, a 25% payback. So if you get a million dollars, you have to pay back $250,000. Some of it's 50%. Some of it's 75%. Some of it's 100%. So it all depends on the agency's business case and the proposal they make to OMB, to the board, and what the board sees as realistic. I mean, Tom, as you know, sometimes you modernize something and there is no payback, but you need to modernize it because it's going to deliver better citizen services, better cybersecurity, or whatever it is, because that the, the current situation is just too bad. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on, and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.